Hello. This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. The blob. The blob. The blob. blob, blob. Uh, we watched The Blob, everybody. Yeah. Not the original, the 88 version? Yeah, 1988 oh, with Kevin boy. Dillon. What a year. Yeah. One year after our birth. That's right. We were just little babes. <laughs> we little babes. This was directed by the guy who went on to direct the movie The Mask with Ooh. Jim Carrey. And Somebody stop me. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. That's actually smoking. just, oh yeah, dude. I Wow. Sense memory is happening. <laughs> okay. So, well, 1988's The Blob led to that. Led That's to crazy. The Mask. Wow. And Blood then it. on to Eraser, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Is that... Get to the chopper. I think that's in no. That? Get to the chopper is in. I or think that's predator. Early on predator. Yeah. Sorry. Eraser is when he shoots an alligator and then says, "Your luggage." That's right. You yeah. are luggage. Your luggage. <laughs> not he, like your luggage, <laughs> sir. No. Oh, it. not like he's not offering the alligator <laughs> no, luggage. No. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Anyway, so this movie was nutso. There was like crazy prosthetics. The effects were really awesome, I thought. Yeah, they were right. like the forces involved with the blob were like really felt. Well, <laughs> <laughs> like I felt they were visceral the forces, to me. The blob, I, I felt. Well, like the that blob. scene where it like encapsulates that woman in the phone booth and then it like crushes the phone booth all together. You like see the crush of it. Ooh, it feels God. like very. Oh, you very feel the weight extreme. of it. Let's yeah. take a listen to the trailer, shall we? If it had a mind. You could reason with it. If it had a face, you could look it in the eye. If it had a body, you could shoot it. Now, man is no longer the supreme being on this planet. The organism is growing at a geometric rate. By all accounts, it's at least a thousand times its original mass. I want that organism alive. I think you pissed it off. You're in for a real treat. Real sticky treat. Yeah. This was co-written by Frank Darabont, who had previously co-written with this same guy, Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Dream Warriors. Yeah. Oh, shit. Which is widely considered one of the craziest, It is best. wackadoodle. Using the guy as a puppet strings, but it's like his veins that <laughs> oh, Freddy Krueger's playing with. Yeah, a lot going on. Really crazy ideas in there. And Frank Darabont then went on to write and direct Shawshank Redemption. The Green Mile, the first season of The Walking Dead. Wow, okay. Before he was fired off of it. Like, oh, whoa, tension. Yeah. And then it went downhill, guys. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but a couple Don't other movie games. tidbits. Mm-hmm. So Del Close, who is known as the father of modern improv, yeah. considered the teacher of the original UCB theater people. Right. He plays a preacher in the movie. And he had been scheduled to direct a mock opera about Ronald Reagan at Lincoln Center in New York, which was going to be called Ron Giovanni. Okay. But then it was canceled because the real Reagan was doing stuff that was like crazier than the parody that they had written. And so they canceled it and Del Close became available to be the preacher in The Blob. (laughs) That is ridiculous. He also used to be like a fire eater and spent time as a human torch. And so that scene where they light him on fire. Yeah. 
is actually him being lit on fire. Wow. Yeah. He also is like kind of, I, this is an apocryphal story, but like that he was close friends with L. Ron Hubbard mm-hmm. oh. and back when L. Ron Hubbard was a sci-fi writer oh, and he shit. was like, hey, you could turn this idea into a religion like oh, as a no. joke. And then the history. Mm, what kind of guilt did Del Close feel after that? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Here's a really weird tidbit. From my life, guys. I used to be a dancer. I started as a dancer. And I did musical theater for a while. And when I was in the seventh grade, I was in this ridiculous musical called The Nifty Fifties. And there was a whole number about The Blob. But we're talking the original 1958. The Blob was Steve McQueen. It was an icky, sticky, ooey, gooey, chubby, flubby, gummy, gluey, flabby, lumpy, bumpy, hunk of jello. Yuck! Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. The actual course was, it was the blob, the blob, a big old blob. And then it goes into that icky sticky. And then I just. Icky sticky. I know, I had to remember. I was like, it was icky sticky, ooey gooey, (laughs) chubby, gummy. Was it flubby or fluey? Yeah. One last thing about the original film. It was originally titled The Molten Meteor until producers overheard a screenwriter refer to it as the glob. But then (laughs) they they thought that... Have some class. (laughs) Well, because at first it was called the mass in the script, Uh and then they wanted to call it the glob, but then they heard that a cartoonist, Walt Kelly, had used the glob as the title for a children's book, and they mistakenly believed that they couldn't use that title, so they changed it to the blob. (laughs) They could have. Gosh, well, that just tells you what they were like. Well, like, but what is it? It's, I mean, we know it's molten lava. It's a mass. It's a, it's a blob. It's a big blob of <laughs> stuff. But it eats you. So this is a large organism, and it looks kind of like a single-celled organism, I guess. So I was like, what are the... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the blob. Like, what are the largest single-celled organisms? And I found a couple of examples that are enormous. Whoa. (laughs) Uh, You know, Uh non-microscopic. So researchers from the University of Texas dove to the seafloor of the Bahamas and found dozens of odd grape-sized balls. Okay. Despite seeming motionless, they had clearly left trails in the sand. And they didn't know if it was like poop or some kind or a new snail or something. Is it, is it poop? And then it turned out that it was a three centimeter wide spherical organism that rolls along the seabed at like a glacial pace. Oh my God. Okay. So it encases itself in a soft, porous shell and continuously sends out thin pseudopods through holes in the shell, grabbing onto the seafloor. And it makes it roll across the bottom, feeding on organic matter in the sediment. Okay. So it's like just this little grape-sized ball that so, moves at a glacial pace. Is it sort of like a like a sand dollar or or like a <laughs> like a star, one of the stars, the sea stars or whatever that they move so slow but they are alive? they are alive and yeah. Or it's it's probably less sophisticated than even that, right? Because I think it's the, well the movement is just like these little like tubules that come out of okay. like the holes in the porous shell that it has. And so it grabs onto the seafloor and just kind of like scoodles very little bit by bit. (laughs) But I just love that they like first found it and saw these trails that it had left and were like, what is it? Is it it rolling poop? Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) Another one is this unique mushroom shaped algae that can grow up to 10 centimeters in height. So that's like what, a third of a foot? I think so. How many inches in a foot? I think it was about 30 centimeters in a foot. Okay. So they grow in clusters in shallow rocky waters. They're also known as a mermaid's wine glass. Oh. 
That is Fancy a great pants. name for them. Yeah, yeah. definitely. A mermaid's wine glass. <laughs> and it only has a single giant nucleus located at the base of its stem. This is actually the organism that led to the earliest understandings of how a nucleus controls a cell. Unfortunately, that research was done by a Nazi-funded German scientist. So discredited and no or just <laughs> fully credited <laughs> just okay. kind of like oh yeah no that this is one of those that came from the nazis scientists <laughs> right, yeah. and it was like file that away right Wait, so does it kind of look like a wine glass then it's g- like kind of mushroom shaped oh okay well that makes more sense. yeah so it's, like toadstool yeah yeah it's very much like yeah <laughs> exactly and it's kind of got a cup like top and mm. so with the long stem. With the long stem and the, yes, the mermaid's, the mermaid's upside sip it. down because yeah. it doesn't really matter how you hold it. <laughs> exactly. A third one, which is the largest, is called Calerpa taxifolia. Mm. It's an underwater fern-like organism that's so large and so structurally complex and so multicellular looking that most people forget to mention that it's actually one unfathomably long cell with countless nuclei and other parts floating inside of it. You know that ferns that you see in aquariums, yeah. like on display? Mm-hmm. It looks like that, except it's just one giant cell. It doesn't have any of the characteristics that we typically bestow on something that is alive and move, or that we like have any emotional connection to, certainly. Right. Well, that's, you know, I mean, you can have an emotional connection to a plant. I mean, that's true. This gets well, we've, 10 we've feet learned long. that if you sing to your plant in a certain way, there's certain kinds of tones right. in music that that's right. remember. That's <laughs> right. But yeah, this is one cell that can get to be 10 feet long. That's pretty nuts. Yeah. Big old loogie cell. Big old loogie That's what cell. I imagine. Anything you're saying, I'm like, oh, yeah, just globbing around. <laughs> just or globbing, 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 massing. And blobbing, massing around. <laughs> this, the blob digests you, and then it become, <laughs> you become it, or it like... There's it digests a, pretty well, man. Right. Like, occasionally you'll see just, like, oh, a human's head, but then <laughs> right. like, the rest of the body is totally digested. Yeah, for the most part, it just absorbs and then just grows. Yeah. It, it becomes more. So I was looking into digestion. So we all know that you eat food, and then you basically <laughs> the food gets processed through a super long tube inside you. And it gets turned into poop. I know that much. That's where I'm headed with it. Oh, it boy. gets broken down using stomach acids and other juices and whatnot before it gets turned into poop. <laughs> but Surprise I was, for any of you out there that didn't know. Yeah. Sorry. I was interested in the mechanisms of absorption of nutrients in okay. the human body. Cool. and. This mostly occurs in the small and large intestine through these structures called the crypts of Lieberkuhn. They kind of crack. That sounds way like folkloric. Isn't that great? Like, I want to talk about some of these names of parts of the body in a second. And please say them in the same way that you just said that. Don't worry. I will. So the crypts of Lieberkuhn. It's they kind of capture partially broken down nutrients and absorb them to be passed through the liver and the pancreas. Mm -hmm. And they're all along the linings of the small and large intestines. And so these colonic crypts are shaped like microscopic thick-walled test tubes Mm. with a central hole down the center of the tube, and they kind of capture the food that flows by and tubes it out to the right place in the body so that you can convert it to energy. There's about 100 crypts per square millimeter. So the average human has about 10 million crypts in their intestines. (laughs) (laughs) So the small intestine is what absorbs most of the nutrients as you digest, and then the large intestine, or the colon, is... (laughs) mostly used to remove moisture. Right. So when you've got diarrhea, mm. 
That's something w- wrong too, with your colon. Too much water intake. It, it just, something goes wrong and the colon doesn't take out the moisture as effectively. Mm-hmm. And the reason that diarrhea can become really serious and even deadly is that you become dehydrated because your colon isn't absorbing any of the liquids that you drink. Sure, sure. And so if you have like severe diarrhea for a couple of days, you need to go see a doctor because you actually could die from it. Right, absolutely. Or uh, I guess in the case of like something like food poisoning, your body's just like, I need to get you the fuck out of here. I don't even have time to absorb that water. Right. I need to get you out. Well, it's funny too because I'm going to talk about animal digestive systems. Okay. And I found out that horses have esophaguses that only go one way and they literally can't vomit. Ooh. This is specific to horses. And I was like, that seems like a bad idea because you could accidentally eat the wrong thing and your stomach is going to be like, well, get this the hell out of here. Right. But horses have like this weird mechanism where their esophagus is they literally can't vomit. And like, what if you do one beer bong too many and you're just like, <laughs> I got to hurl and then you can't. Well, hopefully the horse can handle a lot. That's what I'm saying. Beer. Horses gotta they can stop handle. partying after this. <laughs> That's right. This is a PSA for horses. <laughs> also, though, about the digestive system that I think is interesting, theoretically, mm-hmm. you could have a perfect efficiency, and theoretically, you could never poop. So if you're if you eat the perfect nutrients and your body absorbs them perfectly, yeah, you would not have any waste and you could theoretically eat and not poop. Would you have to eat very little and very slowly? And of the right specific nutrients. Sure. And you couldn't just be like Cheeto puffs. I mean, your body is not no. going to try to digest that. It's going to be a lot of poop after that. <laughs> but it's effectively impossible sure. to eliminate poop, but it's theoretically possible oh, okay. that a human being could like be that efficient. Let's put that on the shelf next to like black holes and you know dark matter and stuff. But maybe one day we'll get no rid of poops. poops. <laughs> I'm tired of buying potpourri. Can I just not poop? Yeah, that would be better. So, okay, on the name of Crypts of Libercune, okay. there's a few other names for parts of the body which have similarly awesome names. Mm. There's a circle of blood vessels that's right below your skull which feeds all the blood to the brain. Mm-hmm. This is known as the Circle of Willis. Bruce? Bruce? (laughs) Also, there's a bundle of neurons in your heart, which feeds the electrical impulses that cause your heart to beat, and that's called the bundle of his. Oh, okay. It's his bundle. Oh, boy. And then, this is my favorite, the part of the pancreas that carries hormone-producing cells is known as the Islets of Langerhans. That sounds made up. It does. But Unless, is, are there like shortened scientific terms thrown in there? No, it's, I mean, they're these little isolates, and then they were discovered by German pathological anatomist oh, Paul Langerhans. Oh, all right. It's yeah. just a matter all of circumstance. Which okay. I just think it's funny. It's like, you know. You're like a no one knows why. <laughs> no one knows how they called it Lieberkuhn, but this guy Lieberkuhn discovered it. No, I, it's funny to me that there were these people with like weird names who named parts of the human body after themselves because totally. they discovered it, and then like they're immortal they live on inside of you moving to animal digestive systems the rhinoceros has a monogastric digestive system which means that it has one single compartment it just eats into a giant stomach and then the stomach poops it out the back i guess well so the same acids and all that kind of shit but they just how do they absorb nutrients then i think in the walls of the stomach it's like just all powerful yeah, it's an all-powerful one giant chamber. Hmm. I feel like that would make your diet more restrictive then because you don't have all the things to be able to filter all the bullshit. Oh, yeah. Like you wouldn't be able to junk food it up, right? You couldn't drink and your liver couldn't, yeah. yeah. Again, going back to the beer bongs, <laughs> would the rhino be able to do a keg stand? 
cow stomachs. Mm. We know that this is a weird thing. They have two? Four. Four, that's right. Four chambers of a cow's stomach. So the cow first eats food, barely chewing it enough to swallow. Mm -hmm. And the first section softens the food. The second section helps push the food back into their mouth for re-chewing. Ew. Yeah. So they're just spittling up and it's like they're they, baby burden it, swallowing it again. I think what they yeah, it's like they eat a bunch of food and then until they're full in the first chamber. Mm-hmm. And then they go and rest and like the chamber kind of softens it <laughs> and like pukes it back into their mouth right. where they chew it up more and send it into the third chamber. Real fucking lazy bones, right? Like you're just like, <laughs> yeah. I can't possibly chew anymore. I'll let stomach one yeah, do this. Let me give this a pre-stomaching. Yeah, and then it swallows that back into the third chamber where the moisture is removed and then the last chamber mixes the food with digestive juices and continues the absorption. I could get all on board with all of that except for the spitting back up and yeah. having to rechew. Like it's nobody like, needs, like you, you, when you burp and you exit yeah. it, it's like nobody wants to relive that you on a daily. Like, yeah, like every meal, <laughs> yeah. you would had to puke it back up into your mouth and chew it again and then excuse me and i hope it doesn't taste as bad as it does for us pucarino yeah yeah grass dude guys this is wild art imitating life imitating art as per (laughs) usual so at some point in this movie there's this crazy homeless guy who got his hand lobbed off, right? Uh-huh. Remember? And whatever. They take him to the... Yeah, because he cuts his arm off because the oh, blob like, right. He's like grabs no! onto his hand. Oh, yeah. It's terrifying. He acted <laughs> fast and cut his fucking hand off. Anyway, he's a hobo, right? But they bring him into the hospital and the nurse asks him if he has Blue Cross. And I remember just being like, Blue Cross? How long has this shit been going on? Since you know? the 80s? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All the way back to the one year after I was born. Oh my God, we're old. Anyway, so I just wanted to delve into this. What the fuck is the history? What's the, yeah, how let's did see. We get how do we point? get here? Yeah. So basically, back in 1850, there was something called the Franklin Health Assurance Company of Massachusetts, and they offered insurance against injuries arising from railroad and steamboat accidents. By 1866, there were like 60 other organizations that were offering accident insurance in the U.S., but health insurance wasn't a thing, right? Hmm. So this is back in the time when jobs were a lot more dangerous. So they were like, okay, well, obviously, if you get crushed doing X, Y, or Z, we can we can pay for that. But like right. by 1900, for example, most medical care in the United States was basically just like a bunch of cheap fucking potions that didn't do anything, like traveling medicine shows snake and the oil. snake oils and all that kind of stuff. So like at that time, the average American only spent like five dollars a year on healthcare, which I is like. I wonder if that's because they just like never really got themselves checked out unless there was something really serious, or if it was like there were really cheap well, doctor services. Well, basically that because the thing about the potions is that at the very least they were cheap and they were being marketed mm-hmm. for all sorts of crazy right. sorts of things, you know, or even something that like cocaine drops for toothaches. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, it was a different yeah. time yep. medicinally. So <laughs> people are spending what is the equivalent of a hundred dollars today on on healthcare and anything was essentially just out of pocket Mm -hmm. so basically what you said they're not getting checkups they're just if something happens they go in before the birth of modern medicine hospitals were essentially just poor houses where the sick went to die it wasn't like today and when then once like the advent of effective medicines especially antibiotics came into play and like this whole revolution in medical schools then hospitals could start marketing themselves for something besides end of life shit like like marketing themselves as places to have babies and bring life into the world it's funny how all these like medicinal things have their like roots in a weirder more fucked up thing like i was talking about ambulances coming from funeral homes Mm -hmm. and hearses and stuff like that and then that growing out of like 
well, we have these things. It's like, well, we have these buildings that where everybody's sick. Yeah. We might as well help them while, we're, while they're there. So at the same time that like healthcare is becoming a lot better and sophisticated, it's also becoming a lot more expensive. So you have these clean hospitals, educated doctors, and mm-hmm. like actual pharmacolo- pharmacological research mm-hmm. that, co- that costs all sorts of money. And you start getting MRI machines, things that are really expensive. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, th- this is still like in the 20s. Right, right. right. <laughs> X-ray machines. I don't know. Right, exactly. Know. <laughs> but still, but basically the idea that people are still not getting their checkups. So okay. by the late 20s, the hospitals were noticing that a lot of their beds were going empty and they wanted to get people in that weren't necessarily knocking on death's door. Right. So enter an official at Baylor University Hospital in Dallas. This is still in the, in the late 1920s. He noticed that Americans on average were spending much more on cosmetics than on medical care. So then Baylor, the hospital, started looking for a way to get regular folks in Dallas to pay for health care the same way they paid for lipstick, a tiny bit each month that doesn't add up as much mm. as if like you know you get into some kind of accident and have to give your whole life savings. Right. So they were like, how do we nickel and dime people? Let's put it on layaway. Yeah, it's fucking nuts. So then in 1929, Baylor offered a deal to a group of public school teachers in Dallas. The plan was that the teachers would pay 50 cents each month in exchange for Baylor picking up the tab on hospital visits. This is what's fucking crazy, is to think that their scheme of trying to nickel and dime people, then they were like, how can we target a group of people? How about this group of workers? So that's where this idea of employer-provided hmm. health care got started. But you, the employer insurance that you were talking about before was accident insurance? Like, right. W- that would theoretically pay out to you for you to pay for medical bills? In it was theory? literally only if to pay for the medical bills as a result of the accident of the you accident. sustained there. Okay. There was nothing in terms of just regular like, checkups and you know provide daily health exactly right. things and for like preventable diseases mm-hmm. that's why you know people were still going to the hospital just to die so this is the first time that people are thinking well people don't want to pay for just regular checkups right. how do we nickel and dime people so that they will what because if we they took have it the out insurance? of their paychecks so that they never even knew that they were spending Ex- all of this money on it exactly mm. so and then this in the case of Baylor in 1929 with the teachers in Dallas the plan only only covered the members' expenses at one single hospital. So that's the forerunner of today's health maintenance organizations or HMOs, which is the reason why you can uh-huh. only go to one, you know, you don't have much choice within an HMO. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. 1929. See, is- these are all just letters to me. Like, I so don't understand how insurance works. A lot of people don't. And that's why I was like, well, how the fuck did it get so complicated? Mm-hmm. We keep talking about how complicated it right. is. It's because they were trying to, target people mm-hmm. <laughs> so that they can get people to pay for stuff. Right. Well, okay. I mean, insurance th- as a concept is all based on like you're trying to, as a company, pay out as few things as possible and continue to have people pay in monthly and not use your service. Right. So if you have mm-hmm. everybody actually using your service, then you're not going to be able to run your insurance business. Right. So it's like a fundamentally ethically weird Well, and it, thing. it's the concept of employers having anything to do with your health care that, right. that kind of gets muddled. Like it's just something that we accept or that it's just something that's been the case. But right. it wasn't always the case. So let, let's move on slightly, right? The Great Depression comes into play. Okay. Almost every hospital in the country sees its patient load disappearing. The Baylor idea catches on, so insurance 
is then being targeted to groups of workers. That eventually becomes the Blue Cross, which is what I'm talking about. This okay. idea of an HMO, like this this insurance that so targets that becomes a wor- private company. Well, B- Blue Cross, they're like the the first one, so mm-hmm. they're popping up everywhere. They're available in okay. almost every state, but still not enough people were buying in. So then World War II happened. Uh-huh. And the government was rationing goods while also like racking up production of goods uh-huh. and they needed ways to entice people to work. So at the same time as this, there's federally imposed wage and price controls that prohibited manufacturers and other employers from raising any kind of wages. The War Labor Board said that wages no longer includes sick leave and health care. Huh. So then employers are able to be like, oh, look what I got for you over here. Dingle dangle. Right. You get health care. So it was at a time of war when they needed more workers because they <laughs> didn't have anybody to fill the factories that they started offering health care as being so it started as like a bonus, like Correct. the way that it would be like, well, we did really great this year. And so everybody gets a check Not at the a end bonus, of the year. A way to entice people to work for you. If you work for our factory, you will get health care. I guess in theory, though, what I mean is that bonuses are to entice people to come and work for a company. It's like you get your regular salary, but you have this chance at these crazy bonuses. Oh, and so I, it's I like, guess I, associ- like any- I associated bonuses with being like a monthly or quarterly or something as opposed to like you get health care. Right, right. I, I'm just thinking in terms of like ways that employers have tried to get the best people to come work for them. Right. It's interesting that instead of just paying them more money, which mm-hmm. then the people would use for healthcare, that it's like we're offering you the healthcare. Right. But we're probably going to offer you a lower salary. Paying for their healthcare was cheaper for the company than paying them more wages. Right. Also, at some point, I read that they like they made the healthcare tax free. Employer-sponsored uh, healthcare tax-free. That's for time. So there's more enticement. You know what I mean? It's like it's so fucking crazy to think about like what the backdrop of World War II happening right. that drove so many things into. Well, I mean, existence. one might argue that it should be tax-free to be paying yeah, for your healthcare and stuff. I mean, and... I don't think that I don't think that it's an unfair argument or like debate to have, but mm-hmm. it's the but again the but fact these are that the we steps just, that we took to yeah. lead to where we're at now. Well, yeah, and like yeah. It, since that time, 1929, the 30s, World War II era. We haven't had like a true, true debate as to whether or not employers should have anything to do with your. Yeah, with that's your not even a question. Yeah, that people. You ask. know what I mean? And yeah. that's ultimately what it is. Is like we're getting into all of this crazy shit because then, you know, of course, it, during the Roosevelt administration, like uh, as a part of the Social Security programs, they were trying to come up with a national health care system. But of course, the AMA, the American Medical Association, referred to it as socialized medicine, and then mm. they capitalized on the Red Scare propaganda, and they're mm. like, nobody should be paying for that. But meanwhile, they're benefiting from the health insurance system. Right. So it's just fucking, I don't know. It was crazy to see how it started and then to see how with different decisions it's even gotten to this point. And we're in such a clusterfuck of n- not really knowing how to how to change it at this point. Yeah, my feeling is that, you know, and this is not the world we live in, but this is like an idealistic universe that I would like mm-hmm. to live in, is that doctors can somehow make a living, but also healthcare is free for everybody always. Right. And that it's not a Mm profit-oriented industry at all. And I don't know how we get to that place, but as long as it is profits, because you were talking about, like, why are employers involved in this? Mm -hmm. And in a way, employers are going to be involved in it because let's say it's not through your work that Mm -hmm. you get insurance. You're still paying for it because you have a job. Like the money that you have to buy your insurance is still coming from your employer. And so there's a way to look at it where it's like, if everybody's going to have it, then you can take it out of the paycheck right away for my health insurance. But that, 
you know, it just well, gets no, so but, fucking but complicated. I think you're skipping over the fact that generally speaking, you don't even get employer-based health insurance unless you work a full-time job. And people oftentimes are not working one full-time job. They're right. working multiple part-time jobs or they're freelancing or all of this stuff. Like, right. it's okay. the idea I of get, like the yeah. individual market versus... Yeah. You know, you're like, why should you're having a job or not having a job determine whether or not you have health insurance? Your point being, if it's abstracted back to somebody paying for it directly, yeah. then they can have multiple different short term jobs mm-hmm. and still be able to pay for insurance. I mean, as yeah, effectively I haven't as had a full time job yeah, since yeah. I was 22. That makes total sense. You know what I mean? And I thought it was also interesting to see that around this time, this like argument between socialized medicine and, you know, people just paying out of pocket. It's like the labor unions, for example, they chose to campaign for employer sponsored coverage because they even though they saw it as less desirable than just single payer, they thought that it was more achievable. Right. So it's like mm. it is politics. That's obviously all of that. And also from that using healthcare and fringe benefits to attract the best employees, private sector, white collar employers nationwide largely expanded the U.S. healthcare system. So it's just interesting wow. to think like how the economy affected the way the healthcare system is run and even like the jump from like in 1949 percent of the population had some kind of health insurance and then in 1953 just 13 years later 63 percent wow nine percent to 63 percent of the population right by the the 60s 70 percent of the population was covered by some kind of private voluntary health insurance plan and since then we've basically just like teetered on this weird thing without having the true actual debate that is required to make anything happen ted kennedy in the 70s he was he was all about trying to get a single-payer system and Mm -hmm. Even Nixon countered with his whole thing, which which had to do with like mandates and subsidies and stuff, which is essentially a manifestation of what we're mm. doing today. And well, you know, it does kind of come down to there are people out there who think that healthcare should not be provided for free, and that yeah. if you don't have the money to pay for your healthcare, that you should deal with that and die. Yeah, and. I, I don't feel that way. Yeah. And I think a lot of other people don't feel that and way. Most people but don't. that's the debate that I don't know that most people don't. Yeah, I that's do true. know that like maybe good half point. of the people don't. Very good point. That's where it gets really muddy today where we're not even having a debate about like how should we provide healthcare for people because yeah. half of the people think that you should have it on your own. And at the very least, I would like that to at least be said because right. we, we dance around it so much because it's like clearly even in the fucking 1965, that's when Medicare and Medicaid was signed into law by Lyndon Johnson because mm-hmm. it was clear that like, yes, there's the quote unquote accessibility of health insurance. It's still more expensive. Before 1965, only half of seniors had healthcare coverage and they paid three times as much as like young healthy people well, so they uh, yeah. they had to do something so it's clear like you can maybe think that people should just like die and deal with it but like right. where are you gonna put those people eventually it's gonna become a problem right something you know well also fucking- any consumer industry does have like some government oversight right. in theory right and so like that's why there should be regulations about like you can't charge somebody more just because they are already sick or are already old or are already you know that's an incredibly unfair way to live and I think most people do agree with that yeah but at the same time the whole debate has become so mired in this we're American we don't do anything socialized like we're we don't want right you know what I mean it's like it's the propaganda and like the weird mental thing as opposed to if you ask I think fucking at least two-thirds of people on the street, do you think people should die if they can't afford health insurance? Right. They're not going to, with a straight face, tell you yes. Right. But then they're like, no, we don't do that here as a way of making... Well, it's as though, like, 
any form of government isn't kind of socialism. Right. You know, as though like like taxes is, as a concept yeah. is not. The, we pay for the postal service. Yeah. Like, what are we talking about here? Yeah. And why is the fucking postal service the one that's government oriented? Of all of the services, <laughs> you know. Yeah. There's we got FedEx, we got UPS. <laughs> like the prisons fine. should be government. Yeah. Oh Postal yeah. service, not so much. Anyway, this was wild, and I'm glad that I was able to do a dive to at least educate myself as a result of seeing this scene in the blob. Yeah. So thanks, the blob. The blob led us to health insurance. <laughs> you never know where you're going to go in this show. In the beginning of the blob, the blob came down as an asteroid from space. Mm-hmm. Now, in the original, he he being the blob. <laughs> of course he's a dude. Yeah. Single cell, only has one thing on his mind. Yep. Consuming consume. you. Consume. <laughs> So in yeah in the original the blob the blob was an alien from space in this one it is revealed that it's a government conspiracy where they like built this blob and then sent it into space for oh. some reason for testing or something and then it came back down. Of course. Anyway, asteroids. <laughs> That's how we get there. I looked into this thing called the Peruvian meteorite illness. Oh boy. And this is known as the Caracas event. And an asteroid landed near Lake Titicaca. Not far from a village in Peru. I'm not going to say anything. (laughs) The impact sent debris flying 820 feet away, landing on the roof of the nearest home. And soon after the event, people in the town started reporting being sick. And it was this mysterious illness that just started affecting the whole town and nobody knew what was going on. Now, the best theory for what was happening is that after the asteroid hit the ground boiling water started coming out of the crater as fetid nauseous gases mm. about 200 people got sick the best theory is that the groundwater in the area is known to contain arsenic compounds okay and the illness is believed to be arsenic poisoning when the residents inhaled vapor that was released by the asteroids impact wow so like there's that scene where he's kind of like standing over the asteroid and yeah. then the blob kind of comes out and grabs him and I was imagining like somebody standing over that and then getting sick from arsenic poisoning. Arsenic poisoning. So is that that oh man, I guess in smaller doses it's just like extreme nausea. Yeah, or, yeah, pretty yeah. much. It's like you can survive it in I mean actually technically arsenic is in most water that you drink, most right. bottled water. Right. It has arsenic in it. But you know below amounts that could ever affect you uh-huh. but this was obviously like it released gas from underground sure. because it's in the groundwater well, like that kind of reminds me they talk about with the climate change shit of mm-hmm. as the earth is warming it's releasing the permafrost that has more methane the in methane the gra- burps yeah yeah we yeah. talked about the methane burps yeah oof yeah i don't so know they, uh, i mean tell me again what year this was this was in 2007 wow so not that long ago mm-hmm. so since then there haven't been any no, it issues. like released whatever it released and yeah. then things went back to normal. But it was this, there was like a week where everybody was like, How everybody in town is getting sick. Right. I mean, what of is course, happening? if you have and like and interestingly, right after that weird yeah, blob that, flew, <laughs> flew from space. So there's a lot of plunging in this movie. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people sticking their arms into tubes yeah. and then the blob gets it. Basically all sorts of things of like, what if you stuck your hand or some kind of appendage in a mysterious hole and yeah. you didn't know... Blah, 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 blah. I was a little surprised there was no glory hole scene in the movie. Dude, I know. It, 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 this movie like <laughs> told the line of exploitation where it was just like, you're obviously watching it. It's not, not quite not quite as much as like Piranha that we just watched oh, for man. another episode. It's, We're going to see that next week. You're basically watching the blob while you're like copping a feel in a drive-in theater yeah it's very much a drive-in movie yeah 
Anyway, a lot of plunging in this movie. You oh, know what man. I mean? Oh shit. Anyway, X, Y, or Z got into the history of plungers. <laughs> what's the What's the deal with plungers? Right? It's just something we we use it. Hopefully not daily. I hopefully it's yeah. not a daily. You need a new toilet if it's daily, or, or you need to you need check what you're eating. Get some new health insurance. Yeah, exactly. But it was interesting to see that the plunger's mold has remained relatively the same throughout history. Kind of like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Kind of moment. Mm. You just to stick with a little suction cup situation. Yep. The origins aren't in fact super clear when the very first plunger was. Maybe because of the fact that it is associated with shit. Maybe just because there's no records yeah, on file. Maybe it's just like a simple enough, like it just pushes through Yeah, like a blockage I mean, that's in the okay. tube. Well, for example, in, in, in 1777 in England, this guy Samuel Prosser, he received a patent for his invention of the quote plunger closet, which was a new lavatory hmm. model. So it wasn't the, you know, the what we think of as a plunger, but it was the idea of using a plunger to flush the toilet where like the plungers open them. They still have these, the pull, pull chain style where there's oh. like a suction cup, you lift it up and that's what gets the water to flow. At that time, like the initial prototype was not considered particularly hygienic because larger waste would like collect on the inside of the plunger. Ew. You know, you Gross. got poops getting stuck, yep. basically. <laughs> but <laughs> thinking of the modern day plunger, according to New York University, there's no patent records that exist. But it was likely that the plunger was invented between 1850 and 1900 when the use of wood and synthetic rubber was becoming more common practice. So as the materials are invented, um, yeah. they're like, we also have toilets now. Right. At the same time, in the 1850s, the suction cup was invented. So bada bing, bada boom, put a stick on this and I move my hand around as though I know how to churn butter. But it's the new age. Anyway. Churning put, put, <laughs> churn butter? I don't know. Ugh, like, Pooper. There's a lot of poop in this episode. Yeah, I didn't mean for it, but it's a blob related. Like, yeah. Come on. <laughs> it was basically asking for it. But it's also interesting to think that plungers work due to the shape of the S-trap drainage pipe. Okay. I'm doing an S in the air yeah. right now with my finger, but you guys can It's in the see shape that. of this thing. It's like a letter. Yeah, S. Nobody knows what it looks like. Yeah, nobody, but but I am doing that with my fingers, so fuck off. Anyway, so toilets with S-taps existed at least as far back as 1852. So we're okay. using sleuthing clues to build Everything's the coming together. Everything's coming together here. However, I really wanted to talk about other fun uses of plungers. Other than poops. Yeah, have you guys ever thought of plungers used in jazz? <laughs> like, like for the trumpet? Yeah. Well, Jeff's blowing my load, but sometimes trumpet players... <laughs> I'm blowing your trumpet. That's right. They use something called mutes by removing the stick from a plunger. This is back in the day. I'm sure they like make mutes the mutes Mutes are now. literally made from plungers? They at least at one point were. Hopefully they're just using similar suction cup rubber yeah. and not actually just being like, I'm going to buy a plunger and then you know pry like, the stick like, out. Oh no, I left my mute at home. Yeah. Did somebody run into the bathroom. <laughs> this point is moot. I gotta or get a- is it? Whoa. Oh, we are... We are all over the place. Get right on now. stage. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, you can you can remove the suction cup from a plunger, remove the stick from the suction cup, however you want to say it. They use it to transform the sound of the trumpet and they make the music sound more like a human voice. That was the idea. But oh. you guys know what I'm talking about. That old timey jazz. Take a listen. Yeah, you can almost hear the poop flying off of the mute. Shut up. Anyway, so I thought that was pretty cool. People have also used plungers in first aid. Did you know this, Jeff? No. Holy smokes. In the 80s, there were reports of several cases in California where caregivers were performing CPR using toilet plungers. What? And they were able to save people's lives. 
They're able to suck people's heart back into action. Is that more effective than just using your hands? Probably. As a matter of fact, in 2009, a Minnesota company called Advanced Circulatory Systems was working on a prototype shaped in the form of a suction cup that emergency medical responders could use to perform CPR. Oh, wow. <laughs> do you think plumbers, when they're plunging toilets, do it to the beat of staying alive? I sure hope so. Ha, 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 ha. Saving Moving your pipe. Saving, Saving your, your pipe. pipe. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of this movie, they like freeze the blob and then shatter it into a million pop rocks, yeah. as you put it. That's you were right. like, it looks like a bunch of pop rocks on the street. Yeah, as a matter of fact, they used rock salt that they dyed purple to create the crystallized blob for oh, the ending. Oh, shit. But you want to talk about pop rocks, and I love those, so go right ahead. Yeah. So, what makes pop rocks pop? I didn't know. Magic? They're literally carbonated candy. Oh. Yeah, they mix the ingredients and then heat them until they melt into a syrup and then expose the mixture to pressurized carbon dioxide gas and allow it to cool. And the process causes tiny high-pressure bubbles to be trapped inside the candy, and when the candy comes in contact with saliva, it breaks and dissolves, releasing the carbon dioxide from the bubbles, resulting in the popping and sizzling that you get. And actually, you can view the bubbles in the candy pieces using a microscope. Wow. Very simple. You know, it's so funny to think about the shit that we just like put in our mouths. We're like, hey, listen to this. I don't know what kind of fucking crazy chemical reactions <laughs> yeah. happen in here. That's fucking, I mean, it's very simple and yet delighted me for years. Yeah, it's a really wonderful thing. What about if you combine that with so soda pop? So I do have something about this myth. Shit. So the myth of pop rocks and soda came from the false assumption that it has an acid base mixture like baking soda and vinegar. Right. Uh-huh. So it's just carbonation. So it's actually not. So someone just made anything. that up. They're like, eh. Yeah, they were like, well, it's probably works like those volcanoes that you made as a kid, and right. so oh, that's man. what it is. And and then also Mikey from the Life cereal commercials was falsely rumored to have died after drinking a six pack of Coke and eating six pouches Hell, of pop rocks. Yeah, we heard about that in Urban Legend. And that didn't happen. Right. Now you can read all about this in a book called Pop Rocks: The Inside Story of America's Revolutionary Candy. But you guys don't need to buy that. No. Just Google it. Near the beginning, bad boy Kevin Dillon is riding on his motorcycle, right? And he is, yeah. he's trying to do that jump. And then he, I don't know what he, like, pussies out or I think he, the deal. Well, I don't, can't tell if, like, his... Or something happened. I but then his, his, like, brake I think his lights. bike stalls. Oh, that's right. And uh, then he yeah. can't brake. And then, yeah, he, like, bails out. Right. So he was, like, his, at some point he freaks out and starts hitting the brakes. And mm. they don't work. And I was kind of like... How do brakes work? Really <laughs> as simple as that. I did. I mean, honestly, I'm just like, I know that there's brake fluid, but what the fuck is brake fluid? Right. So I just kind of looked up hydraulics for dummies. It was pretty neat. Awesome. And basically, the, the, the simple idea behind any hydraulic system is that force applied at one point is transmitted to another point using an incompressible fluid, almost always an oil of some sort. So to put it another way, if you apply a downward force to one piston, then the force is transmitted to the second piston through the oil in the pipe. And since that oil is incompressible, almost all of the applied force appears at the second piston. Right. Now, in the case of brakes, then you also have the idea of like leverage. That, that's how like the force is able to be multiplied. Mm. So that's how you're able to like with your little tiny foot. In my case, like a child's foot pressing down <laughs> on the brake is able to exert that much more force. So you you're, you're saying that like when you press down on a brake, it actually is the force of your foot that's physically manipulating it rather than it like sending the signal electrically exactly. to the brakes to use that amount it of force. It is literally you doing that. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, because yeah, isn't there a thing about 
about like old cars, they didn't have anti-lock brakes. Oh. I remember having to learn this when... You had to it, like pump them and shit? Right. You had to actually pump the brakes. Right. I remember because growing up in New Hampshire where things were really snowy, anti-lock brakes were like a real concern. And I remember the first time anti-lock brakes actually like kicked in for uh-huh. me. And it's this weird like... Right. That you feel in your foot and you're yeah. like, what... Because you basically feel the equivalent of of like someone pumping, like it feels like the car pumping it faster than your foot ever could. Because it's yeah, fucking yeah. And and I was like, am I about to crash? Like, what the fuck? My brakes feel like they're vibrating. I don't know what's going on. Well, but basically, like you were saying, when you use your brake pedal, your car transmits the force from your foot to its brakes. Since the actual brakes require much greater force than you could apply with your leg, Mm -hmm. you your car has to like multiply the force of your foot. So it does that in Mm. in two different ways. There's mechanical advantage or leverage which uh, do we need to is this like well is this like pulley systems yeah, like the way like that like the more pulleys you can pull over here but you can do, yeah, yeah precisely yeah. that kind of stuff i don't know if I'm, okay. <laughs> then there's hydraulic force multiplication so for example if the piston on the right is nine times larger than the piston on the left then any force applied to the left hand piston will come out nine times greater on the right hand piston oh. so if you apply a 100 pound downward force to the left piston a 900 pound upward force will appear on the right wow yeah so then the brakes also transmit the force to the tires using friction, and the tires transmit that force to the road. Is Different- that basically like they put rubber clamps kind of on the wheels that are moving? Yeah, yeah, exactly. About it, like, my or, bike think about, or think about trying to stop a spinning record oh, okay. or something like that. And different materials have different microscopic structures, so it's mm. harder to slide rubber against rubble, rubber, for example, than sliding two pieces of steel against sure. each other. Br- like brake pads and clutches is similar to trying to stop a, a disc or stop something spinning. Okay. Like stopping your bastard stepkid on a merry-go-round. However you want to say it. <laughs> it's that yeah. force. But you I know, like how simple of a mechanism it yeah, still is. You very, know? very simple. And then just having an incompressible fluid like oil making it all happen. Mm. And what's cool about it is like the distance between the, the two pistons can be pretty much anything it can like mm. zigzag all sorts of crazy ways that's why you see like under the hood of your car sometimes it's there's all Everything's sorts of crazy weird stuff angles. yeah it's like yeah it's cool <laughs> and like with motorcycles especially too now of course if you get a leak in your brake fluid eventually there's not going to be enough fluid to fill the brake cylinder uh-huh. and the brakes will not function which is what happened to kevin dylan it's a, if it's a major leak then the first time you apply the brakes all of the fluid is going to squirt out and your brakes are going to go out so Wow. You need that fluid. Check your lines. Yeah, that, I, that's something that's crazy to me is the incompressibility of fluids. Yeah. That like one day we, I want to talk more about that. Totally. Because yeah. yeah, we use that to our advantage all the time. But like, why does it work like that? Totally. <laughs> why I mean, are those atoms very... not compressible, but in solid form they are? Like Yeah. I, well, and, and it's seemingly such a simple idea, but all it took was somebody being like, well, no what I know if I <laughs> yeah. put this in these two pipes and I put it on the boobity boop I, I mean the fact that we here it comes out there the fact that we drive cars is outrageous yeah. <laughs> to me let alone the fact that we even have something like anti-lock brakes mm-hmm. the fact that we don't even really have to worry about it at all like you just hit the brakes and then hopefully you don't skid out because then you know your yeah. brakes are gonna get all funky That's well when you pretty soon them. we won't even hit the brakes oh shit <laughs> <laughs> One final blob factlet. So they refer to it, even if you heard it in the in the trailer, mm-hmm. that they refer to the growth of the blob as being a geometric growth. Like, it's growing at a geometric rate. They say that all the time right. in these sci-fi movies. So much simpler than I even had it. Yeah. It just basically means there's a constant rate of change. So if okay. the, the rate of change is two, 
two, four, six, eight. It's always okay. changing by Whereas two. Whereas exponential is Ex- two, yeah. four, eight, sixteen. Precisely. Like the the rate of change doesn't change. Much That's simpler really than cool. I thought. All right, the blob was just growing. But Geometric shapes. I do rate. hear that all the time, and yeah. I've I now I'm glad to know for sure. We what had it that means. in Terminator. Like, oh, uh, you know, at some point, Skynet, you know, it grows at a geometric rate. Yeah. Constant. One of the taglines of the movie is, scream now while you can still breathe. Oh. Because the blob will suffocate you. Yeah. I, th- I, I think is what they mean by that's that. That's gotta be what they mean. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, had, I just thought it was a really stupid line, but he's like, this is an experiment in biological warfare, or hadn't you noticed? <laughs> All right. I'm sure someone was had recently just been eaten. Ke- yeah. Kevin Dillon is like... <laughs> Sneaking around the scientist's like forest lab right. that they've set up. As he does. And this scientist is just walking around like yelling out exposition for Kevin Dillon's sake, where he's like, We don't care about this town. This town can be sacrificed <laughs> oh, yeah. for the purpose of the blob. He might as well have been like, I am the bad guy in this film. Yeah. I am monologuing about being a bad guy. Yeah. Anyway, I had some fun watching this movie. Unless it wasn't clear to you guys before, hopefully it's clear now. The blob is an icky, sticky, ooey, gooey, chubby, flubby, gummy, gluey, flabby, lumpy, bumpy hunk of jello. Yuck. Thank you to our listener who suggested this. Yes. We are doing Piranha next week. Terrible movie, lots of fun facts to explore. Yeah, so look forward to that. In the meantime, rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us at ohthatsathing.com and ohthatsathing on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at It's a Mia on Twitter and Insta. And I'm at Jeffrey Ekman on Twitter. And you're going to start seeing a lot more from us on Twitter as far as articles and images and stuff like that. We realized, like, we learned some fun stuff doing this podcast. You guys should be able to read more about all the crazy topics we cover. So hit us up. We'll We'll be in touch. Hopefully you guys will be too. All right. Have a great week. Bye.